Hello and welcome to the official podcast of the North American Veterinary Anesthesia Society. I'm your host, Dr. Bonnie Gatson, board certified veterinary anesthesiologist and proud gas passer. I'm so glad you decided to spend your time with me today as we go through our anesthesia journey together. This episode is going to be a continuation on the themes we discussed in the previous episode. So if you have not had the pleasure of treating yourself to that episode, I would encourage you to pause now and go back and take a listen. But just to give you a quick recap, in our last episode, we discussed the possible benefits of utilizing full mu agonist opioids such as hydromorphone in equine surgical patients for analgesia. However, there were still a lot of unanswered questions, including looking at large-scale clinical trials, weighing any possible positive pharmacodynamic effects with other harmful effects. Although there are several possible consequences of using this class of opioids in horses, one of the most challenging to manage would be gastrointestinal stasis resulting in colic. How can we square using full mu agonist opioids against the risk of inadvertently causing potential harm to our equine patients? As I alluded to previously, we recorded our last episode almost four years ago, and since that time, some of these unanswered questions have been teased apart, and we're starting to get more answers. So on that note, I'm pleased to welcome back to the NAVAS podcast, Dr. Rachel Reed, boarded veterinary anesthesiologist from the University of Georgia, to discuss some of the findings from her more recent research on opioid use in horses, and to discuss her role in the quest to optimize pain management in this understudied species. Welcome back, Dr. Reed. It's been, I think, three years since I last spoke to you about this topic. I looked at the recording date. We recorded our first episode on like on this topic or our first like iteration of this topic on August of 2019. And the before times. (laughs) The before times, that's right. Yes. So like the last time we spoke, you had done some pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic studies on hydromorphone. And since then, you've done a lot of studies looking at the use of full mu agonist opioids in horses. I'm hoping we can kind of go over some of the new studies, some more information that's come out. So we're going to start all the way back to meparidine. So the last time we spoke, you had mentioned that you had done some meparidine studies in horses and you had given this drug, both IM and sub-Q, and some of the horses with this, particularly with the sub-Q injections, had these like really nasty dermal effects. So do you want to just repeat what you had found and then also maybe some updates on the histamine data you got from those trials? Yeah. So we looked at meparidine. This was kind of during the period of time when we were doing these studies was when opioids were difficult to get because of the opioid crisis. So we were trying these different opioids that hadn't really been looked at a whole ton in horses. And one of them was meparidine. And we had, I think probably when we recorded before, had the pharmacodynamic data showing that we had given one milligram per kilogram IM and sub-Q, and neither of those routes of administration resulted in any sort of measurable antinociceptive effect utilizing thermal mechanical threshold. 
and they had had these nasty reactions, which we took blood samples to look at histamine and tryptase to basically see if we could quantify any sort of reaction that the horses were having to the injection of the meperidine. But basically, none of those actually showed a really nice response, even though we were getting these like disgusting local reactions to the injection sub-Q. It would have been really interesting to look at IM injections, like biopsy the intramuscular area where the injection happened to see if that reaction was also happening within the muscle and we just didn't see it. But even just getting the permission for the skin biopsies, kind of as the study was ongoing, we had to adjust our animal use protocol and everything like that and get permission for those biopsies, which took a little bit of work. So we didn't do the same for the intramuscular injections, but that showed some pretty nasty reactions subcutaneously as well. But based on the results of that study, we couldn't really recommend the use of meperidine IM or sub-Q for or use for pain management in horses. Simultaneously, UC Davis, I think, had done a study where they were giving meperidine as well, and they had a few different dosages. And one of the dosages they actually had to discontinue because the horses were having such terrible reactions to it. So they basically eliminated their high dose. And I think they were giving the drug IV, and they were able to see some antinociceptive effect, but it was very short-lived, and they had to give a pretty big dose to be able to make it measurable. So I think we just have better options right now than meperidine. So based on both of those two studies, I would say it's not great. <laughs> yeah, we did talk about the opioid crisis kind of during our original podcast episode because that was such a big deal at that time. We spent a lot of time talking about buprenorphine because of all the opioids we have, at least in veterinary medicine, there are specifically veterinary formulations of buprenorphine, like for example, Simidol, which is marketed directly for cats. And so I think we had briefly talked about the use of buprenorphine in horses. And you had mentioned that the cost of a dose of buprenorphine was something like $500. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I think we also mentioned Cymbidol is just a higher concentration of buprenorphine. So could we just use like Cymbidol to save some money? I don't know if anyone's looked at using Cymbidol in horses. They hadn't when we spoke. And obviously this would be off-label. It's like important to note for our listeners, but I don't know if anybody has done that since we last spoke or if you're aware of any updates on that. I'm not sure about the injectable, like the more concentrated form of buprenorphine. There definitely are studies where they gave injectable buprenorphine and looked at PKPD of the drug. And then last year, I worked with Videhi Perantepe at Virginia Tech, and Virginia Tech actually funded the study. She came down, we used our horses and my thermal threshold. We put some buprenorphine patches on some horses and basically we basically had a placebo group and then a 20 microgram group and then a 40 microgram group and looked at whether or not it caused a increase in their thermal threshold. And actually it did. She presented that the results of that research at ACVA meeting this year and Interestingly, they didn't have very high plasma concentrations of the drug, and it did at the highest, the 40 microgram per hour patch, which was essentially two 20 microgram per hour patches, had an increase in thermal threshold for those horses, which was significant compared to the placebo group. But when we actually looked at the patches, so we sent the patches to UC Davis along with the blood for plasma concentrations, and they looked at how much buprenorphine was left in the patch, and it was like anywhere between 70 and 90% of the drug was still there. Oh, interesting. Yeah, their plasma concentrations were really low, reflecting that really poor uptake, but still we saw the effect. So 
I think that the plasma concentration required to have an antinociceptive effect in horses for buprenorphine is actually pretty low, which makes me actually wonder about Zorbium, the new buprenorphine topical product. Because if you look at the dose of Zorbium and, and kind of compare it to the doses that we were putting on those horses, it would be like two of the large cat tubes. <laughs> yeah. And, and that would be about the same dose that we were giving. So I think that's a new area to move in in regard to buprenorphine. And using that product, actually, the cost comes out pretty reasonable in comparison to giving the injectable. Now, that injectable cost that I had talked about was kind of based on giving the horse a a reasonable dose compared to what we would use in other species. But based on the most recent study with the buprenorphine patches, it seems like they don't really need that much. Like it, it works pretty well. Right. So what would be like a cost comparison between like one of those buprenorphine patches versus like the Zorbium tubes? The large cat tubes were $15 a piece approximately. So if you had to put two tubes on one horse, that's $30. And, you know, we would still have to do the PKPD to see what the actual duration of effect right. would be for the horse. But that's a fraction of the $500 that you would expect right. to expend for the injectable version. Right. What about the patches? Oh, the patches actually are are more expensive and they're actually kind of difficult to obtain. (laughs) It took us a while to find a place that we could buy patches that were 20 micrograms per hour. They tend to be smaller patches. And in the UK and other countries, you can get patches with more drug in them, but actually getting those patches into the United States is difficult. (laughs) So that's how we ended up using such a low dose for those studies is just because it was the only kind of patch that was available to us. So let's move on to hydromorphone. The last time we spoke, you had just finished up your PK or pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic studies on hydromorphone in horses. And you were using it clinically at the University of Georgia, but had yet to do really any clinical trials on how horses were affected by using hydromorphone. So do you want to give an update? Because I know since then you have done clinical trials. And so why don't you just give us a little bit of an update on what you guys found in those studies? Sure. Yeah. So I think we talked about last time how a lot of people are afraid to use pure mu agonists in horses because of the risk of decreased GI motility and subsequent colic associated with the use of pure mu agonists in horses. So After we had been using hydromorphone pretty consistently for about two or three years, we did a retrospective looking back at all of the horses that we had anesthetized essentially since we started using hydromorphone and compared the horses that received hydromorphone in comparison to those that did not receive hydromorphone and looked at the incidence of post-anesthetic signs of colic in the 24 hours following anesthetic recovery. And in that study, we were able to show that there was no difference between groups. So whether the horse received hydromorphone or butorphanol or no opioid at all, they all had approximately the same incidence of post-anesthetic colic, which was approximately 2.5% overall for our healthy population of horses, which is about what would be expected based on the other studies that have been published. So essentially, we were able to show that you know, based on what we have seen about the antinociceptive effect of hydromorphone and its duration of action and everything like that, it's worthwhile to give it and you and you don't have to worry about the risk of post-anesthetic signs of colic in comparison to not giving the opioid or giving butorphanol, which was helpful. 
So then we did a prospective clinical trial where we looked at 40 healthy adult horses undergoing anesthesia for arthroscopy of any joint, and they randomly received either butorphanol, 0.02 milligrams per kilogram, or hydromorphone, 0.04 milligrams per kilogram. Uh, And we pulled blood from them as well to look at the hydromorphone pharmacokinetics under anesthesia, which you expect the clearance is going to be slower. And basically the amount of time that the drug has in the body is going to be larger when patients are under anesthesia because they're not going to be clearing it as fast as they would if they were awake. But our major kind of endpoints, what we wanted to see is, you know, do they have better anesthetic recoveries and are the horses more comfortable postoperatively if they receive hydromorphone in comparison to butorphanol? So this gets a little bit messy. (laughs) I'm going to try to tell this story as clear as possible. There were 40 horses and 20 or approximately half of them, like one group was 19 and one was 21. Based on the randomization, it didn't come out perfect, 20 and 20. But half of them roughly got butorphanol and half of them got hydromorphone. And we pain scored them using two different pain scores, a composite pain score and the facial assessment of pain score as well. And so they were pain scored prior to surgery, generally the day before the surgery took place. And then we scored them again at two hours post-recovery to standing and four hours post-recovery to standing. We also looked at recovery quality variables in terms of like number of attempts to stand, time to standing, time to sternal, and put accelerometers on them to assign a recovery score like uh, from the Stuart Clark Price study from a few years ago where he came up with the accelerometer-based recovery score. And then we also looked at time to first defecation to see what the effect on GI motility would be between the two groups. So for all of our recovery variables, there was basically no difference for these horses. Now keep in mind the horses were treated exactly the same as we would treat a clinical horse. So when they got into recovery, they received a standard dose of xylazine. They were all rope recovered. And so there was a lot of things about their treatment that were exactly the same that I think impacted their recovery, but there was no difference. The butorphanol and hydromorphone horses both had the same sort of recovery quality. Then when you looked at their pain scores at two and four hours, both groups had pain scores that were higher than baseline at two hours. And our anesthesia residents were doing the pain scoring and they were blinded to what treatment the horse had received. And their impression at that time was that the horses were still kind of affected by the general anesthetic that they had received. So their mentation was a little bit off and their physiologic variables were changed, but it was more associated with kind of what you would perceive a horse waking up from anesthesia as opposed to a horse that's in pain, if that makes sense. But because the scores are based on what they're based on, those composite pain scores were higher at two hours for both groups. For the facial assessment of pain, it was actually no difference at two hours for both groups and no difference at four hours for both groups. So then At four hours, interestingly, looking at the composite pain score again, the butorphanol horses, their pain scores on average had gone up. So it was a little bit higher than it was at two hours. And for the hydromorphone horses, their pain score on average had gone down and it was now no different from baseline. So basically they had returned to what their pre-surgical pain level was as measured by the composite pain score. So based on this information, it kind of tells us that the horses that received hydromorphone, that hydromorphone was still working and that they were more comfortable than the butorphanol horses. And then that it leaves that two-hour time point to say, gosh, were they painful or were they still recovering from anesthesia? So then we did a follow-up study after this where it was an observational study looking at horses, all the horses being anesthetized for elective surgery 
in the hospital, and they were scored with both the CPS and the facial assessment of pain score prior to surgery, so the day before they were anesthetized, and then following anesthetic recovery at one, two, three, and four and five hours, so for five time points following anesthetic recovery to standing. And half of the horses were surgery horses, so horses that were anesthetized for some sort of surgery, largely orthopedic surgery or like arthroscopy or neurectomy, tenoscopy, things like that. And about half of them were imaging horses. It was 50 horses total, and it was like literally like 26 of them were surgery and 24 of them were imaging. And the imaging were all MRIs except for two CTs that we anesthetized. And the imaging were almost like 100% mild lamenesses that they were coming in to try to figure out the origin of the horse's lameness. So then it is crazy looking at their pain scores for both. There was no difference in their pain scores between the horses that underwent surgery and the horses that underwent imaging. But reliably at hours one, two, three, all of their pain scores are high for actually both the facial assessment of pain and the composite pain score. And if you look at basically your interventional points in terms of when you would treat a horse's pain, the CPS basically had them above um, a painful threshold, essentially saying the horses are in pain for hours one and two following anesthetic recovery. And the facial assessment of pain had them above that threshold at hour one. So basically saying that like you could potentially give unnecessary rescue analgesia to horses following anesthesia if their pain scores are being affected by the general anesthesia that they just received, if that makes sense. So basically, we had a a population of horses that half of them should not have been in pain because we didn't do anything to them and we only anesthetized them for a very mild lameness. And they still had those high pain scores in the first couple of hours following anesthesia. So the take-home point is that if you're going to be scoring pain in horses in a hospital environment, you should probably not score their post-operative pain until at least three or four hours following anesthetic recovery. And if you score it before then, you might get artificially elevated scores associated with those two pain scores anyway. And it explains the results of the first study where we saw the hydromorphone horses got more comfortable at four hours post-anesthesia anesthetic recovery, even though they hadn't received any analgesics in the interim between hour two and hour four. And the butorphanol horses became more painful, so their scores continued to go up in that four-hour period. So that's kind of where we're at with the hydromorphone right now. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like I didn't say anything because your entire study was like blowing my mind. (laughs) (laughs) So why do you think the horses scored what we think is artificially higher? Do we think that these animals, like is the pain score actually accurate? and performing general anesthesia on these horses. I mean, because you're saying that, you know, the imaging horses shouldn't have a reason to be painful because we're not doing anything painful to them. But a lot of times, I guess for our listeners who aren't super familiar with this process, when we anesthetize them, we often still, you know, move their body around in kind of awkward positions, including lifting them up on a crane. And maybe if you're an animal that has like an orthopedic injury, and you're getting like tugged and pulled in all these weird directions. I mean, I know for myself, but if I'm like getting old now. So <laughs> if I tweak a muscle when it's sore and I tweak it even a little bit, I mean, I get really sore. 
pretty soon after that. So is that really what's happening? Or is it that these animals have an inappropriate mentation, you know, even for hours potentially after they stand? And so is that why our pain scores, the ones that we have are unreliable at this point? Right. At least for the immediate aesthetic period. Yeah, no, that's a great question. So all of the horses that underwent MRI received a pre-anesthetic NSAID, either phenylbutazone or flunixin, and they also received butorphanol as part of their anesthetic protocol, in addition to, you know, like ketamine, xylosine, lidocaine, those sorts of things. So really, they get a lot of analgesics that seem like they would be enough to account for any discomfort that might be associated with the positioning and the hoisting and things like that. It is certainly possible that those horses scored higher in those first couple of hours because of that. But it seems like they should have enough on board, you know, and there was actually no difference between them and the surgery horses. Like, so the curves of their pain scores are almost exactly the same in those first hours following anesthesia. And so for the composite pain score, it it really makes sense. Like when you look at the things that are scored, so the items on the scoring system include physiologic variables like heart rate, respiratory rate, rectal temperature, borborygmy. And then there's a component that's behavior where you kind of quietly observe the horse and it has to do with, you know, what they're doing in the stall and horses that are sleepy or are still affected by the anesthetic drugs are going to be kind of look more painful because they're going to be kind of not as active in the stall, less interested in what's going on around them and things like that. And then there's an interaction component where basically you go into the stall and you palpate the area that they had surgery or for the horses that had imaging, we had them palpate the area that was imaged. So if they had a lameness, they palpated the the joint that was associated with the lameness to try to emulate the scoring that the surgery horses were getting as much as possible. But it is pretty interesting. We saw both of those, that effect of the curves, you know, kind of mirroring each other for both groups, the surgery and the non-surgery groups. And none of the horses received any sort of intervention in the, in the interim. So If they came by, if the clinical service gave any sort of pain med in those five hours, the horses were eliminated from the study and we no longer scored them because we wanted to see truly what their pain scores were without any sort of intervention. So it seems like it's kind of coming from the effects of the anesthetic agent. So it's something to take into consideration when you're scoring horses following anesthesia. That's amazing. (laughs) Okay. So have you had any recent updates based on your research on the use of fentanyl patches in horses? Yeah. So I think maybe the last time we were talking, we were doing a location study where we were putting the fentanyl patches in different locations on the body. So the leg, the inguinal area, and the tail, basically to see if there was good uptake from all of those locations. And from that study, we showed that they were able to take up the fentanyl and where it had measurable plasma concentrations in the blood. And it seemed like the tail and the inguinal area were better than putting the patch on the leg. And there was kind of another study that came out where they gave injectable fentanyl to horses and measured thermal threshold. And in that study, they said that you would need a plasma concentration of 6.1 to 6.8 nanograms per mil to achieve an effective antinociceptive effect. 
unfortunately for our patches, we were putting two patches on the horses and we were only getting two nanograms per mil at most at their peak plasma concentration. So in order to get to those effective plasma concentration as measured in the study where they gave it IV, which could be a little bit different where it's unclear, we would have to put on like as many as six patches to achieve that plasma concentration. Now that said, there are studies generally case reports where horses are receiving NSAIDs and they have pain that is refractory to that NSAID therapy. And so they are treated with a fentanyl patch or two or, you know, three, depending on the study. And those horses seem to get more comfortable, like the synergistic effect of the NSAID and the fentanyl are able to provide some additional analgesia for that horse and keep it under control. And assuming based on our study, if they're putting two patches on horses, they're probably only two nanograms per mil, which is a third of what they found in that study saying that 6.1 to 6.8 would be an effective plasma concentration. After we did that, we had a couple of different studies that we did. One of them was a cool study that I was super excited about because fentanyl is super lipophilic. And the goal was to try to see if we could get it to concentrate inside of a joint. So we put the fentanyl patches over the equine carpus and did a series of synovial fluid taps over the course of 48 hours and measured the synovial fluid concentration of fentanyl and the plasma concentration of the fentanyl. So we had six horses and they randomly received the patches on either the right or left carpus and the opposite untreated carpus served as the control. So at each time point, we had three samples from each horse plasma and then treated and untreated carpus basically trying to show that you could put the patch over the joint and it would concentrate within that joint relative to the untreated joint. So if you had a horse that had joint pain, you could potentially put a patch over it and achieve analgesia with a lower effective circulating plasma concentration than would be necessary if you put the patch elsewhere on the body. And we basically completely disproved our hypothesis. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, Great. Yeah, so this we're su- submitting this paper to Vet Surge. So, so if you're interested, you can look at it in Vet Surge next year, probably, where essentially the plasma concentration goes up and is significantly higher than the synovial fluid concentrations. And the synovial fluid concentrations in both the treated and the untreated joint is almost exactly a mirror image of each other. <laughs> So, so if you're treating a joint, the take home message from that study is that it doesn't matter where you put it on the body, you're going to be getting the same concentration within the synovial fluid that you would if you got, if you put it right over the joint. Yeah. Cause I know there's like really nice studies looking at physically ejecting morphine into joints Mm -hmm. and how in a variety of scenarios, it provides pretty decent analgesia. Yeah. Yeah. But it would have been nicer if you could just slap a fennel patch yeah, over, like, over a joint. Certainly. I mean, like putting a needle in a joint is not benign, you know, like especially right, with right. horses where, you know, it, it could go downhill pretty quickly. So the idea of just being able to slap a fentanyl patch on and, if, and have the same effect was pretty attractive. But at this point, we can say that it's not a thing. <laughs> Yeah. Ho-hum. Yes. So, you know, there are other ways that we could look at it. Like if if the joint was inflamed and had increased blood flow, maybe there would be a concentrating effect at that point. But these horses had healthy pie that, you know, we did poke them several times over the course of 48 hours. I'm sure they were inflamed by the end, but we still didn't see any difference between the treated and untreated joint. So it was not helpful. And then... The last study that we did with fentanyl was this year. We 
did thermal mechanical thresholds, just like we had originally done with the hydromorphone and the paridine studies. And the goal with this study was to try to achieve that plasma concentration that Meyer described in his injectable study, that 6.1 to 6.8 nanograms per mil. And so to achieve that, we had four treatment groups where we had placebo or no patch at all, and then two patches, which should theoretically get us to two nanograms per mil, four patches, which would theoretically get us to four nanograms per mil, and six patches, which should achieve six nanograms per mil, which is in the range of what he said would be effective. And we put those patches on and did thermal mechanical threshold over the next few days and also took blood for plasma concentrations of the fentanyl. And there was no change in their thermal and mechanical threshold. <laughs> Great. Yeah. And we also looked at Borborygmy scores, heart rate, respiratory rate, no change. It was like we hadn't given them anything, basically. So that was weird and disappointing. Yeah. So it seems at this point, based on that study, even if you put six 100 microgram per hour patches on horses, it's still probably not going to be enough to have an antinociceptive effect. But there are those studies where they combined it with an NSAID and it seemed like it was helpful. Those are more like case reports and they're not like prospective controlled things. So it could be that, you know, when combined with an NSAID, it's so synergistic that you're able to have a, an antinociceptive effect at that lower plasma concentration. But at least based on the studies that we've done, it been overall disappointing. <laughs> yeah, seriously. So I, I have a follow-up question kind of based off of all these recent, like somewhat disappointing results yeah. that you're getting. Mm-hmm. In your opinion, what are some interesting, I would say like new horizons for the treatment of pain in horses? Like, is there anything that you've heard about or read about that's piqued your interest or you see as like potentially a new avenue of experimentation in this field? I think certainly like the different routes of administration are cool. Like the Zorbium idea with buprenorphine, like look at the PK and PD of that in horses and maybe we would be able to use a lower you know, such a small dose that we would be able to provide effective, long-lasting analgesia for a low cost. And then I think right now there's a a general pretty big interest in like CBD (laughs) in a lot of species. And that's something that, uh, you know, there's plenty of work that could still be done with horses. And after having to deal with horses that are running around losing their minds with opioids for the last few years, I would love to look at a downer. I was going to ask you about the horses that had like six fentanyl patches on. Were they like losing their marbles? I guess not. I mean, their plasma concentrations of fentanyl were so low, like maybe not. Yeah. It makes me really want to test our horses to see if they have the gene that promotes that increased locomotor activity with horses that receive opioids. There's like a a paper with fentanyl where they were able to identify a gene that's associated with that reaction. Because some of our our horses like lose their mind no matter what, because they're in a stall. And like, I would come in at midnight and the horse would be like running laps in the stall. And I'll be like, there's no way that horse doesn't have six fentanyl patches on, you know, and that horse would be getting, for example, like treatment B. And then I would go down to the fourth horse who's also getting treatment B. And he's like, laying down asleep. Like I have to go in the stall and like get him out of bed, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like wake up, get up, buddy. You know, like we've got to do some measurements on you now. So I would say that that reaction of horses is so variable and 
it seems to be for sure only in horses that are not painful at the time of administration. I definitely haven't seen it in any of our clinical horses that are painful, but there's definitely like a couple of our mayors that like just get oh so really bad, like biting and kicking and rearing when they have any sort of opioid. Yeah, I bet it is frustrating. And I think my interest in particular, and this has been peaked <laughs> because there were some papers that were coming out in my residency, well, our joint residency, because, well, we didn't have a joint residency, but we didn't residency at the same time. Yes, yes. So there was that paper that came out that basically showed that there were some dogs that had SNPs or like single nucleotide polymorphisms Mm -hmm. on the opioid receptors. And the dogs that had this like one or two gene alteration that coded their mu opioid proteins, essentially, those dogs would exhibit extreme dysphoria with opioids. We, we like associate that with like Arctic breeds of dogs. So like huskies and stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And those dogs tend to like express just like a higher rate of these like snips. Oh my God. And I bet that that stuff is like more prominent in animals than we have yet to explore. Yeah. I mean, this is like pretty well described, for example, in like people with red hair. Right. And so I wonder if that's also happening in like dogs. I think it's been explored more in dogs than it has, for example, in horses. Yeah. I think that would be super fascinating to look at. For sure. And that reminds me like a few years ago at ACVAA, I remember there was an abstract about Mac in Labradors of like, it was like black labs, yellow labs and brown chocolate labs. And I thought it was such an interesting study, but I haven't ever been able to find the actual paper associated with it. Like maybe they never wrote it up. (laughs) You think red mares just have like higher max? I believe it. (laughs) Redheads. (laughs) Right. Or it could be associated with some sort of gene, like you were saying, like the the opioid receptor situation, you know? So absolutely. Dig it out. Right. So you have done a lot of research, looking at the clinical use of opioids in horses. I know that we as anesthesiologists don't like cookie cutter approaches to anesthesia in general. Mm -hmm. However, based off of all of your experience using a variety of different opioids in horses, let's say we just have a horse getting arthroscopy, otherwise healthy, something like that. How do you approach pain management in like your standard, otherwise healthy horse. How do you take that on? So basically all of our preoperative horses are going to get an NSAID prior to induction of anesthesia, either flunixin or phenylbutazone. So they have the NSAID on board. And then at this point, pretty exclusively for 99% of the horses that we're anesthetizing, we're giving hydromorphone 0.04 milligrams per kilogram, just because it's cheap compared to the other opioids that are out there. And it seems like it works really well. So we love it. And then the surgeons kind of decide whether or not to carry on with the hydromorphone postoperatively, depending on the comfort of the patient. And we've had some horses that have been on hydromorphone for weeks, literally, and seem like they tolerate it really well. Then they, of course, you know, get an alpha-2 agonist, which is going to have some amount of analgesic effect as part of their pre-med and then induction ketamine as well. And then if the horse is having 
just a straightforward arthroscopy, then we might just do like a lidocaine CRI, you know, which is going to have some analgesic effect, but it's going to have tons of other great effects in horses, as we know. So we would start that for a variety of reasons. And then if they're having something particularly painful done under anesthesia, then we'll consider adding ketamine and or xylazine CRIs to provide additional analgesia throughout surgery. So if it was a really bad joint, for example, we might do that. And then also if the joint's pretty ugly on the inside, we'll also put morphine in the joint prior to recovery, just 0.1 milligrams per kilogram once they're finished and everything's closed up, have them inject that. And that should stay in the joint for about 24 hours or more to have an effect locally. And typically joints that are diseased are going to have upregulation of mu receptors anyway. So hopefully that morphine will be pretty effective also. And when they go into recovery, sometimes if it's something really distal and we're worried about the patient's ability to recover, we'll do a little local block to be able to make them super comfortable when they're getting up. But of course, obviously in horses for any joint that's proximal, you're not going to be able to do that and have them also stand. Right. And then they xylazine recovery, but that's mostly for the quality of the recovery. Right. And then after that point, once they stand and walk back to the stall, it's kind of up to the surgeon. They generally stay on some sort of NSAID for at least another couple doses. And then they decide whether or not to include any sort of opioid. I would say that they're kind of strategy. They have the NSAID and then if the NSAID's not enough, they'll do an opioid. And if the opioid's not enough, then they'll start considering things like lidocaine, ketamine CRIs and things like that. What dosages of like your CRIs do you guys typically use for lidocaine and xylazine and ketamine? Sure. So for lidocaine, we generally do a two milligram per kilogram loading dose and a three milligram per kilogram CRI, which there are places that do rates that are a lot higher than that. And that's totally fine. I would, I think the two and three that I mentioned is the pretty standard dose that most people do. Is that milligram per kilogram per hour? Oh yes. Sorry for the CRI, three milligrams per kilogram per hour. Yep. And then for ketamine, we're usually doing one to two milligrams per kilogram per hour, depending on the horse and how much MAC reduction that we need. And then xylazine, 0.5 to one milligrams per kilogram per hour. I will say that lately we have had like a tough time getting dobutamine, which for anybody who is anesthetizing horses, you know that it's like part of your anesthetic plan, essentially. We use a lot of dobutamine in horses. And so it's been a real struggle to get dobutamine. And at some point here in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be basically out of it and have to use other options like norepinephrine, phenylephrine, things that are more expensive and less cool, <laughs> work less, less <laughs> well. And so we have been kind of messing around with like upping our PIVA protocols, essentially increasing the CRIs of things that we're giving in an effort to reduce the amount of inhalant that we need so that they're less likely to need a presser or a positive inotrope in order to keep their blood pressure up. So a lot of that kind of dose manipulation, you know, is taking into consideration a lot of things, even in addition to their pain level. The pain scoring thing is very weird to me. Hopefully it'll be published next year, like the timing yeah. and stuff like that. But it's hard to think of a way to score pain that is not... It, you know, not going to take into, into account any of these sort of things that are related to anesthesia, you know, so it kind of messes up the construct validity of the scoring system. But yeah, I mean, I'm sure they have that issue in humans too, right? Like mm-hmm. you're not going to get an accurate pain score out of a human that woke up from anesthesia. Uh-huh. Cause at least humans like will tell you like, I'm a 10 out of 10, but like that person's not going to say anything right? <laughs> like yeah. that makes sense or is coherent, you know, immediately after anesthesia or I, like, I don't know, I don't want to humans for a living, right. but yeah, yeah. I can't imagine that 
that's also accurate. I guess you would just give people or animals the benefit of the doubt and just treat their presumptive pain in the immediate post-operative period if it's indicated Mm -hmm. and appropriate for that patient. Yeah. And I think there's like with horses, there's so much of the concern for colic that, you know, people are like, oh, we can't give that because they're going to colic. Like every horse that gets an opioid in its life is going to colic. Of course the horse could colic, you know, but if it does colic, the chances of it being associated with the opioid are small. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking to me about opioids and horses and pain management in general. If you like what you heard today, I encourage you to check out NAVAS and consider becoming a member. As a member of the North American Veterinary Anesthesia Society, you get tons of benefits, including access to CE events focusing on anesthesia and pain management, blog posts, fireside chats with boarded anesthesiologists as well as specialty technicians, and just so much more. Visit www.mynavas.org to advance your anesthesia journey today. If you have any questions about this week's episode or the NAVAS podcast in general, or if you want to suggest topics you would like for us to discuss in future episodes, please reach out to us at education at mynavas.org. We would love to hear from all of you. Also, a huge thank you to our sponsor, DECRA, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Visit their website, www.decra-us.com to learn more about their line of veterinary anesthesia products. I want to again thank our returning guest, Dr. Rachel Reed, for her work in advancing the field of perioperative pain management in horses. And a huge thank you to all of you, all the gas passers out there who choose to spend their time with me today on the NAVAS podcast. Becoming a skilled anesthetist is a lifelong journey of learning and self-discovery. So I hope you consider listening in the future. Until next time, I'm your host, Dr. Bonnie Gatson, and thank you for listening. Thank you.